Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. I'm Charity Neppy. Later in the hour, Willpower is an educational program that brings Shakespeare to life in Iowa City area classrooms. We'll hear my conversation with director Kathleen Johnson. But first, in his first novel, Sean Adams' The Heap took us into a dystopian crisis as volunteers dug for victims, survivors, and recyclables in the heap left behind when the world's largest apartment complex collapsed. In his follow-up, he takes us to the far reaches of the earth, to a large, seven-story, nearly empty building called the Northern Institute. The research taking place at the Institute has been suspended, but just in case it should ever resume, a team of three people has been sent to live and work in the building, making this the most unusual office satire I have ever encountered. Adams is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he lives in Des Moines. I spoke to him when the novel was released in January of 2023, and the book comes out in paperback later this month. Hello, Sean. Hey, Charity. It's great to be here. Yeah, welcome back to the show. And I, d- I want to start off with a little reading, uh, again, to set the scene. Um, so as, as we dive into this conversation, <laughs> people have a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about. Would you just read a little bit from the beginning of the book? Yeah, absolutely. This is the very beginning of the book. Um it uh, yeah, kind of sets the tone for the voice and you know, like what you can expect. So yeah, um, <clears throat> there are only two others on the caretaking team I supervise: Gibbs and Klein. Each I'd estimate about ten years my junior. The thing we take care of is a sprawling building called the Northern Institute, located in a remote region where the snow never melts. I cannot say exactly where. I fell asleep just ten minutes into the helicopter ride here several months ago, and when I awoke shortly before our arrival. All I could see was an endless expanse of white. The Northern Institute had, for a long time, been a lively research facility. Now, having been stripped of its research budget, it is merely a facility. When research halted and the researchers were evacuated, Kay crunched the numbers and deemed it cheaper to hire a small team to look after things than to make the anticipated repairs where the building simply left vacant until research could resume. And so here we are, the three of us in my office, drinking coffee, preparing for Friday's work. Outside, a harsh gust howls across the snow's surface. Windy out there. Even worse, I say. Even worse last night. Klein does not respond, but instead looks out the window. I come from a windy place, Gibbs says, so I'm fairly used to the wind. But yes, it was very windy. I leave a moment for Klein to contribute to the conversation, but he continues gazing out the window, his eyes thinning to a squint. It It was whipping so intensely against the walls, I say to Gibbs, I barely got to sleep. Gibbs's grip in our coffee mug tightens just slightly. If you're too tired and need the rest, I'd be happy to oversee things, for the day at least. That won't be necessary, I say. I'm not tired. But you said you barely slept. I said I barely got to sleep, I say. Once I did, I slept quite well, which is not true. I slept terribly, but I will not admit as much, definitely not to Gibbs. Something to know? It is not required that I, as supervisor, make my office available for coffee and light socialization each weekday morning before we work, before work begins. This I do of my own volition, in the spirit of generosity, but Gibbs and Klein don't seem to realize this. Perhaps if I'd wanted recognition, I should not have opened my office for coffee and light socialization on our first day here. Perhaps I should have waited a week or two and then said, hey, how about I open up my office each morning for some coffee and light socialization? Or maybe just, hey, 
How about I open up my office each morning for some coffee, as the outright mention of light socialization might create an atmosphere that is neither light nor particularly social. At any rate, whether I made overt my desire for there to be light socialization is immaterial. The point is, had I waited, the other two might have known a world without coffee and light socialization to look forward to each morning, and then they might see my commitment to going above and beyond and appreciate me more. But I do not feel appreciated. I feel taken for granted and often disrespected and also powerless to correct matters as voicing one's desire to be respected and not be taken for granted is much like voicing one's desire for light socialization, antithetical to achieving the stated goal. That is Sean Adams reading from his novel, The Thing in the Snow. And uh, that obviously introduces us into three characters who are working very closely together in isolation. And isolation is... A major, major theme in this novel. They are in this giant building in the middle of literally nowhere. They look out the windows, and at least at first, the only thing they can see as far as they look is snow. So they are isolated. They only have contact through a helicopter that drops things off once a week. That's how they have contact with the outside world. I was shocked, Sean, to learn that this was not inspired by the pandemic. This was something you were working on before we all went into quarantine? Yeah. You know, the first draft I had done, I had actually done kind of like a while ago, basically when I was um, just finishing up work on The Heap. And so I, I, I did come up with this idea. I just thought it would be funny. It would be a funny novella or something like that, maybe something like a short story. <clears throat> and then I had... I'd been working on it for a little while and wasn't really coming together. And then actually it was it was it was the summer of 2020 when I was like, oh, I should take that back out again. And yeah. And, you know, for maybe for some obvious reasons, everything kind of clicked into place a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I, so how did the pandemic change this project? Well, I definitely feel like so. I think one of the things I was working on and, and that I and that I struggled with early on was just like sort of like you know, like the the feeling of this place and and the weekends at this place were actually like one of the most interesting things to try and figure out. Like, what would it be like when you're you're in the middle of nowhere, you have nothing to do for you know forty eight hours, and you know you're in this building that has nothing but chairs and tables, and that's it. And so, kind of the sense of timelessness, uh, you know, or like or 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 not timeless, but like the sense of the the lack of grounding in time that was something I kind of really really was able to tap into um you know that that changed a lot as during the pandemic where I was just like sort of you know experiencing that where you know you you realize it's Tuesday all of a sudden and you know you don't know how you got there um but yeah yeah so that was the biggest that was the biggest change that I that I managed during the pandemic although a lot of the writers that I've talked to over the last few years um we're basically living the pandemic lifestyle before the <laughs> pandemic struck. Yeah. So, I mean, how how did the pandemic change your life? You know, I just I think it's just like more generally, like my wife was working from home. You know, we were just always home, just not not going out anywhere. You know, just kind of the the sense because I was already working from home before the pandemic, but you know, there was always kind of the grounding of you know, it's five o'clock. Um, my wife arrives home, we figure out dinner, that sort of thing, you know, or, you know, it's the weekend, maybe I'm going to, uh, go out to dinner with a friend or something like that. And so, you know, just sort of like eliminating all of those, 
uh, little things. That mark the passage of time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and obviously that gave you and your wife more more opportunities for coffee and light socialization. Yeah, there's a lot of coffee <laughs> and light socialization throughout the pandemic, for sure. Well, and that, that was one of the things that I was thinking about was not just interactions with coworkers because obviously we do have some um, coworker interactions that are tense and <laughs> fascinating and at times hilarious in this novel but the um, the interactions that I think a lot of us had during those periods uh, in the early on in the pandemic were either with our families, you know, trying to interact with them in completely new and different ways where there would be four people in a house together trying to accomplish completely different goals than they normally would be. Or um, maybe going into a workplace where you're only working with one or two other people, whereas you'd normally be working with a whole office full of people. So that it's not just about isolation. It's isolation <laughs> with this very tiny team. No, totally. No, it is. It's, it's, you know, it's specifically there's just like that there's only just, you know, a few people there, um, you know, that it's 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 and they're in a huge building, too. You know, I think that that's another aspect of it that, yeah, like you were saying, you know, you go into work, you're working with one or two coworkers and, you know, but like, you know, they don't the office hasn't shrunk. You're still in this huge building. You're right. still, you know, you know, you're at your desk and they're at theirs and, you know, halfway across the room or whatever. And so, yeah, just kind of like. Getting that sense of just like everything is is just different, you know, like everything is everyone is a little separate. Everyone, you know, that sense of isolation, but like isolation within groups. So I sat down and read the novel without reading reviews of the novel um, and which is something that I often do. And then I started looking at reviews and I saw that people were describing this as a psychological thriller, which is not the way that I felt <laughs> at all. How do you describe it? You know, I feel like there are <clears throat> there are definitely, you know, like moments of unsettlingness or, you know, like that's sure. the goal at least. But yeah, no, I definitely kind of think of it almost like in some ways, almost like a comedy of manners, you know, like in in certain ways where it's just, you know, it's a lot of characters who are struggling with each other and maybe not addressing head on why they're struggling with each other. There's a lot of, you know, like workplace drama that is, you know, a stand in for something much larger, some interpersonal conflict that's much larger. There's a lot of that. So it's I, I think of it more as almost like a comedy or like, yeah, like comedy of manners or like a workplace comedy for sure with, you know, elements of the the strange and the, you know, surreal kind of mixed in. Absolutely. And your first novel was very dystopian. This felt like our reality just slightly twisted. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. No, I don't think of this necessarily as like a dystopian novel. I think unless like... we're living in a dystopia, Sean. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's a great. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Maybe slightly more dystopian than reality. Maybe slightly less dystopian than the heap. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great way to put it. Or some, <laughs> you know, like like elements of dystopia, you know, for sure. But yeah, no, I don't. I think that this is definitely more of kind of like a compact, uh, you know, like just like like a satire of of real life. Absolutely. And and of course, we are, we are um, interacting as a reader. We're interacting really with just one character in the book, the narrator of the book, who yes. is not an entirely reliable narrator. <laughs> at, least, at least that was what I found. So we're going to take a short break, Sean, and we will talk more about 
this novel of isolation and office interactions and with a little bit of the bizarre woven in as well. And Sean, we're also going to talk about your book series within the book because that was (laughs) one of my very favorite parts. I'm talking to Sean Adams. His novel is The Thing in the Snow. We spoke in January of 2023 when the book was released. It's coming out in paperback later this month. Adams is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and he lives in Des Moines. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, Willpower is an Iowa City program that makes Shakespeare relevant and relatable for today's high school students. I'll talk to the director of the program, Kathleen Johnson. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll find out about Willpower. It's an educational program that brings Shakespeare to life in Iowa City classrooms. We'll hear my conversation with director Kathleen Johnson. Right now, we are listening back to a 2023 conversation about a novel called The Thing in the Snow. It's by Sean Adams, and the book comes out in paperback later this month. Adams is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he lives in Des Moines. The Thing in the Snow is really kind of a workplace comedy. It takes place in a large building, a seven-story, nearly empty building called the Northern Institute in a very isolated, snowbound region. There are three people sent to keep this institute viable. As the research has been shut down, there are there's this team that has been sent there basically just to make it possible for the research to start up again at any time. And uh, Sean, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about these three individuals. So, I mean, this is a, a large part of where the workplace comedy comes in is that there are these three people. They are isolated together. They have to work together all the time. And uh, they are led by this man who we eventually learn his last name is Hart, right? Yes. Um, And on the team, he has Klein. Klein considers himself to be an artist, although we see very, very little evidence of that. But he's a creative type. Um, Gibbs is the female on the team. And uh, Hart believes that she wants to take over his leadership position. He feels quite threatened by her. She seems to be perhaps I'm going to I'm going to say the most capable of the three of them. So I'm I can see why he feels (laughs) threatened by her. But there are these three people and and it's like a bureaucratic nightmare because (laughs) they are sent there simply to be living people in the building. But they are given meaningless tasks that are incredibly time consuming. Tell me about that whole construct and what you were trying to do. Yeah, I just, you know, what's funny is like in an earlier draft, maybe they did more like kind of 
um, you know, like custodial work or they cleaned more or they did things that were a little bit more active, you know, that almost have at least the veneer of, you know, necessity kind of, you know, and and then kind of as, as I went forward, it was just, you know, more and more it seemed like, oh, what if they just did absolutely nothing? You know, like really like they're just sitting in chairs. They're like opening doors to make sure the hinges don't sound too loud. They're doing all of these just tasks that are almost like they're like like tedious is an understatement um and so yeah the idea for that just kind of came from you know like that that I wanted to and you know I wanted to write about isolation I wanted to write about distraction I also just wanted to kind of you know it's definitely like a little bit of a a, a poke at you know at all sorts of you know kind of like jobs you find out there that are just sort of you know filling space basically um so definitely wanted to kind of you know a little bit of a a poke at, you know, like late capitalism and and just the sort of jobs that people end up doing that, you know, nobody can kind of really define and that like might not be necessary at all. But definitely, you know, but even a job like that can drive somebody, you know, a heart into uh, like a, somebody like heart into, you know, like, like he gets obsessed with it and he's obsessed with like being the best at it. And like, you know, every job that exists there's always the person who who, want, who takes it a little too seriously so yeah that was kind of that was kind of you know the the fun of it is is creating a, a job that seems almost impossible to take seriously and then creating the one person who would take it seriously well and it made me think about again in in real life uh, i think a lot of us have had experience with jobs where we really bring nothing to the job there's <laughs> nothing about this job that requires anything special in us we are just getting a thing done and that can feel like when you start a job like that like oh this is amazing i have very few responsibilities Abilities, and it's not challenging, and I'm going to get paid to do this. But then uh, there was a whole episode of The Hidden Brain about this, and there's been research done about these kinds of jobs where people are so deeply unhappy in jobs that don't require any special skills and where effort is not rewarded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, And they do have this... Um, this overseer who is offsite, who clearly does not care about them <laughs> at all. And her name is Kay. Is that her first name or her last name? Because we only learn everybody else's last names. I was confused. I think of it as um, her first name. Okay. Uh, you know, I think that like kind of like it was kind of a, a, a decision almost to kind of never fully reveal like what, you know, that like it's Klein, Gibbs and Hart at, like at the Institute uh, and then Gilroy, and then you know, like these these names that kind of definitely seem like last names. It was definitely like a, a choice to kind of make it a little vague of of you know, is this just a world with a strange naming convention, or or is are these last names? But I think of Kay as as her first name. All right, and yeah. Kay is the the person who gives them the tasks and that they need to report back to. Hart needs to report back to every week, and I think. The ultimate act of cruelty in this novel is when Kay tells Hart that he does not need to give her any additional information. Post-it <laughs> notes are unnecessary. He doesn't need to communicate with her further. That is such a crushing blow. <laughs> and and it but I mean it seems like a small thing, but it was so 
powerful. Do you have inspiration from real life? Did you ever have a terrible boss who tried to crush your soul? Oh no, <laughs> you know, not not to this extent for sure. But you know, I think that there is there there often does feel like you know in in any in any career and in any job, it often feels like you know you you hear about it you know when you when you do something wrong and then. You know, so often you're you're just kind of coasting along, and you're thinking like, "Am I like, am I doing anything here? Like, you know, like, am I am I doing what, you know, like, am I am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing or not?" And so, kind of, you know, and you're just like desperate for approval, and you know, but for the most part, you know, it's like your supervisor is out there, uh, and and they've got their own things going on. They can't necessarily always give you the approval you're looking for. And I think of Hart as as somebody who's like desperate for that approval. Yeah, yeah. this yeah. is the most demoralizing workplace. Yes, ever. exactly. Yeah. Now, my favorite part of the novel was this sort of sub plot <laughs> in the novel where Hart he wants to be a great leader. He has aspirations of being the best manager in the world, and he has brought with him to this remote outpost a series of novels that are about leadership in the workplace. And they um, are, they feature a protagonist called Jack French. And you have dreamed up plots for, I, I don't know how many of these novels that you weave in throughout the book. And they're like, they sound like action thrillers, but oh, they're yeah, all no. about workplace leadership. This They're brilliant. Where did you get this idea? I just, you know, it's hard to say. I just, like, I always love, like, I love a story within a story. And so, you know, the idea of, you know, like, I wanted Hart to be obsessed with something and its leadership and then kind of thinking more about, you know, just like, what kind of absolutely ridiculous thing can he be reading? Like, what kind of thing? And at first, I, you know, at one point I was thinking maybe he'd just be reading, like, leadership books, you know. But then I – and then I thought, you know, it's also just a nice break because, like, because the story itself of what they're doing, the things they're doing are so mundane and so simple that kind of it's – I think it's a fun break to kind of, you know, like like occasionally launch into this world where it's this, you know, this guy Jack French and he's like, you know, he's he's – He's dealing with like like disasters and he's, you know, like he's basically like a super soldier who's a manager and, you know, like and so, yeah. So kind of where that came from is just this idea of, you know, like a nice like it's like a fun it's a fun kind of contrast to the work they're doing. And just like, you know, this this idea of, of somebody like Hart would be so obsessed with leadership that even when he would, you know, choose to read a novel, he would read these books that are still about leadership. Well, and what makes this this book so much fun are these little details within the book. And I just want you to know how much I appreciated the last line of your acknowledgments, which is a very sweet acknowledgement, <laughs> but also a callback to the Jack French novels. <laughs> and I'm sure that there's a little part of you that like, is anybody going to notice that I did that? No, this is this is really satisfying. Good, to hear this. good, good, good. I one hundred percent noticed. One hundred percent laughed out loud. Uh, and you'll have to you have to read the acknowledgments, but you have to read the whole novel first to yeah. to find it even remotely funny. Um, so, so I want to talk about distraction because, as, as I've said, I mean, this is a satire. It is bizarre. These people are living at the ends of the earth. This is a situation that pretty much could not happen. At least I hope couldn't really happen. And yet, it's incredibly relatable because. There are elements of 
all of our lives that are reflected in this. Distraction is a huge part of the novel. I mean, that's that's really an overwhelming theme in the novel because, as I mentioned, everybody, the three people who are supposed to be on this team working at this institute, when they look out the window, all they can see is snow until one day they can see a thing in the snow and they can't identify the thing in the snow and just its presence and the question about it becomes this overwhelming obsession. They cannot complete these tedious tasks that they have been assigned because of their distraction by this thing in the snow. We live in this world, Sean, where we are distracted constantly. And here is a group of people with nothing to do but focus. And yet, <laughs> and, and yet they are just as distracted as all of us with our smartphones and the Internet and the televisions and coworkers to chat with and all of the things that distract us every single day. Tell me about your relationship with distraction. Oh, I mean, I, you know, I have a very close relationship with uh, distraction. You know, I feel like, you know, I, you know, I, I sit down to read my book, you know, at night or something and I'll and I'll be scrolling through Instagram looking at, you know, dog videos or something. You know, I definitely feel like that's kind of, you know, like that's a central theme, you know, I'll sit down to to write, but you know, you're you write on the computer and so you have the whole the whole internet right there, you know, it's just kind of a constant it's a constant struggle to just like keep focused and get things done and and whenever I'm able to, you know, whenever I'm able to focus and, and actually get my work done or my writing done, I'm always just, you know, I'm always surprised that, you know, this only took, you know, I'm like, oh, that took forty minutes. You know, like that was, you know, I got a lot of work done in those forty minutes because I, you know, I didn't I didn't click uh, you know, to didn't didn't like have a it didn't have like a wild hair and then Google something and then fall down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole or something and then yeah. But yeah, no, that was distraction was a huge part of it. And also but also I also feel like it's like important that heart in trying to uh, you know, squash the distraction just makes everything much worse. <laughs> well, that yeah. he's yeah, that he, that it's almost it's like almost like kind of the constant battle of like, you know, can you can you ever fully not be distracted? And like what does that even look like? Well, and and that's, again, that's what makes this so relatable, because the situation is completely unrelatable. And yet every single one of us has attempted to quash distraction, has locked ourselves out of our phones or, you know, had that tree growing on the phone. That was a big, (laughs) a big uh, trend for a while, Uh, you know, tried to take all of these steps to limit distraction. And yet... It's something that humans do not seem to be able to battle very well. And it also made me wonder, you know, we live in this, we, we talk constantly about how we live in this age of distraction. Sean, have we always lived in an age of distraction? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. And I think, you know, probably the answer is yes. And also probably, um, you know, there's probably something about kind of like fighting the distraction that that just only makes it worse or that like that there's there's also part of it that it's just like, you know, like like this this idea of a, of a life of pure efficiency is also kind of like, you know, like that, you know, that's it's turning yourself into a robot, basically, you know, you're you know, that 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 this is part of, you know, you know, you know, the human condition is that there are distractions. And, you know, it's also, you know, 
if we weren't distracted, you know, if I wasn't distracted, I probably also wouldn't come up with half the ideas I write about, you know, and if I was, you know, if I was just constantly like focused, I'd finish things a lot quicker, but I probably, they might not be as funny or, you know, right. all those. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. So, but I like, but I like that. Yeah. No, I think like, yeah, the age of distraction is just, you know. The human condition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, speaking of coming up with these ideas. Uh, you know, sitting in and reading the novel, it, it it feels like you're locked into this world. And I was annoying my family because I was reading it on a, a road trip and I kept laughing. And then everybody has that impulse to say, why are you laughing? Like, well, you don't really want me to tell you. because <laughs> 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 It's not going to be funny. And I'm just going to go on and on. Um, but I am curious. These I I have read two of your novels now. And there are so many incredibly off the wall inventive twists and turns in each of them. Tell me about your brain. How how, how do you come up with these ideas? You know, I think a lot of it is like that. I mean, in both cases, it's funny to say this maybe for The Thing in the Snow because it's like a very sparse world. But I do really, I mean, I really start with kind of the world building aspect of a novel. And that's always just like, that's kind of like the joy of writing to me is kind of, inventing these weird little worlds and and so and then but I, I also just find a lot of I find a lot of joy in then kind of like establishing the rules and then kind of you know like there's there's nothing I feel like there's like you know like there's like funny one-liners you know and there's funny jokes and stuff but I feel like there's nothing quite as satisfying as you know something that can only work like you were saying it's like a joke that can literally only work you know if you're on page you know 150, you had to read the first 150 pages right. to get this joke. And it's very, very funny. But it's you very, cannot tell exactly, your exactly. spouse who's and driving. Then, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> no, exactly. And I and I do feel like that that's, you know, that's kind of like, that's a goal of mine. But yeah, it really does start for me with, with the world and then kind of, you know, that, that it's not necessarily about, you know, like funny characters or, you know, funny scenes necessarily. It's just like if you create a weird enough world, it's just like inevitably going to be pretty funny. Do you question yourself? I mean, I can imagine you think of something and it is funny and it it probably is entertaining you. (laughs) But without explaining it to other people, without having somebody respond to this whole world that you've built, how do you know if it's funny or if it's just you're losing it? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I mean, the answer is you don't really know, but <laughs> you just kind of hope, you know, because it's always really funny, too, because I have these scenes, you know, of each book, and I think that they're so great. And then, and then I, you know, my friends read the book, and, you know, like one friend is like, you know, oh, my God, like the part that really cracked me up is this part. And you're like, Oh yeah, that was just like a throw-in little thing that I <laughs> that I just like you know like came up in a in a third or fourth draft you know that I just tossed in there and like I never I didn't think of that as like the central funny scene in the book and you know and I think it it does kind of come down to just sort of yeah like like you you don't really know but you just have to like trust the world to kind of build the comedy in. So we only have about thirty seconds left. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, I'm working on something. You know, uh, I'm working on a new thing now. It's uh, you know, it's it's kind of in progress, but it's uh, kind of a series of of shorter, like really short chapters. Another, it was another project I started during the pandemic. 
uh, kind of just to keep myself sane. But uh, yeah, it's it's another weird one, another hopefully funny one. We'll you know maybe to me, <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, keeping yourself sane. I'm I question your sanity, Sean, in, in reading in reading your novels. But <laughs> thank you so much. This was so delightful. The book was delightful, and it was wonderful to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sean Adams is the author of The Thing in the Snow. We spoke when the book came out last year. It comes out in paperback later this month. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Chances are pretty good that when you were in high school, you read or at least were asked to read a play or two by William Shakespeare. Introducing students to work that is more than 400 years old brings with it a number of challenges. The Willpower Program from Riverside Theater in Iowa City is designed to bring Shakespeare to life in local classrooms. Riverside Theater is an underwriter of IPR. And the program has been around since 2000. But Kathleen Johnson, who became education coordinator for Riverside Theater in 2022 is breathing new life into the program and is with me now. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, good morning. It's wonderful to have you here. And I know you come from a teaching background, right? Yes, that's right. Before stepping into this role at Riverside, I was a public classroom teacher for about 11 years all throughout the Midwest. And you were an English teacher. Yes, I was. Did you teach Shakespeare? Of course. How (laughs) do you not teach Shakespeare? I did. I was um, in classrooms from ninth grade through 12th grade, and I taught all sorts of Shakespeare plays. So I, I think that the question, how can you not teach Shakespeare, is one, <laughs> one that yeah. some people have. I know that my son asked me, why are we learning this? Where my daughter yeah. was like, this is really interesting. Um, but why do you think we should still be teaching Shakespeare in the classroom? I think to answer that question, that's like a really big one. And I, I have a very personal feeling for that. But I think ultimately the reality is we will continue to teach Shakespeare. English education has been in a bit of a evolution over the last few years. And what we consider the English canon has really changed, right? Both because English teachers are no longer always required to teach the same text across the board. It's really about the standards and how we're learning what we're learning, not just what text. But Ultimately, there are still certain texts that will always be there. So personally, I think Shakespeare is great, not because of who Shakespeare is, although we call it Shakespeare because it's easier than listing off any one of his many, many, many plays, but because of the plays themselves, right? They form a foundation and a backdrop on which we can learn about punctuation and grammar on which we can learn about story and character on which we can discuss big, deep, difficult questions that even though they were written 400 years ago are still incredibly relevant and difficult to grapple with today. So personally, that's why I think we should teach it. But I think that's also why we do and why it's not one of those authors that has been lost or pushed aside or changed out maybe over the past couple of years as we are deciding 
why do we still teach this person? Why not switch it up with a more modern, relevant female, person of color, author, right, which are really important discussions to have. So much of modern literature harkens back to Shakespeare in so many ways. I mean, is there an element of this makes you culturally literate because you understand where all of these references come from? Yeah. So one thing that I talk about with our teaching artists and with our teachers, too, part of why we think the willpower program is so important And one of the kind of guiding principles of what we do is going into the classroom and not saying, we're going to adapt this, we're going to change it, we're going to give you the modern version of Shakespeare. It's everyone in this room, everyone in this school district, everyone in this community is capable of speaking Shakespeare's words, of understanding what he's saying. This is not a text that is only for a specific segment of our society. And I think we are doing a disservice to students if we don't empower them to feel comfortable with his words because they are infused into so many cultural elements. If they're not owning him and feeling like they can see themselves in his words and work and stories, then when they go out into the world, they don't get to take that agency and say, I'm a part of this cultural conversation. And I think we can empower them to say, but he's not beyond me. Like, I am beyond him, if anything, right? I get to deny him if I choose because I know him, not because I'm afraid of him. So the language yeah. is one of the big barriers to entry. I mean, you're yeah. teaching material that is more than 400 years old to high school students. I have I have a language barrier with my kids today, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm just 30 and, you know, 30 plus years older than them. So we are reaching across centuries. Mm-hmm. How, how, as a teacher, do you help kids bridge that gulf? Yeah, so... I actually love that you just brought up what you did, right? You said, like, you have a language barrier, right? Language changes over time. We are incredibly adaptable humans. We take words and we make meaning from them. And that is exactly what Shakespeare was doing, right? His words sound incredibly, like, lofty and poetic. And they are. He does a lot of really cool things with them. But at the time, they weren't necessarily the like epitome or the height of language, right? He was creating and playing with words just like we do. And so I think if we strip away some of the, I don't know, the if we take Shakespeare off the pedestal that he's on and we say, these are just words and we are capable of understanding words. And then we go in and we say, let's break this down. We learn new words every day. That's what we do when we come into the classroom. And when I was a classroom teacher, it was the same thing. So when we start off, it might be slower, right? What is that? What is he saying? Or even, I know all those words, but in that order, what does this mean? And I often find both in just a three-day workshop or even in a unit-long Shakespeare classroom unit, you start off slow and then within a day, a week, students are like, yeah, 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 stop. Stop. Stop interrupting us. We get it. I know what's going on. I know what he's saying. And that's the ultimate goal any teacher will tell you is to hand that experience off to the student. I think we get in trouble when we don't trust students to be able to dig through that difficult work 
And so we don't give them the chance to do it, right? It can feel really scary to say, like, I'm going to watch you struggle and I'm going to struggle myself and I'm not always going to know what he means either. There isn't one right interpretation to a lot of what Shakespeare was saying. In fact, some of the versions of his plays we have aren't even necessarily the original words he wrote down. And if we just accept that, then we all get to kind of figure it out together. And that is also what makes his work really cool and relevant today. So tell me what you do. I mean, we know what what teachers do. They all have a different approach, but we we roughly have an idea because we've all been in a classroom before. What does willpower do when you go into the school? Sure. So our willpower program is ultimately designed to help aid teachers and students in engaging with Shakespeare. So when we were looking at how to adapt it post-COVID, our goal was to say, what is going to be easiest for teachers? And as a former teacher, I said, well, the easiest thing to do is to go to them when they're teaching Shakespeare. During that unit, whenever it may be in the school year, in the exact classroom that they're in, on the day that they're teaching the part of the play that they want help with. And that's what I do. When I connect with teachers, I say, great, what play are you teaching? Romeo and Juliet. Awesome. What part of this play do you think your students would most benefit from a little extra help with or would really like to bring to life? Or what part do you as a teacher want to bring teaching artists into the classroom to really like heighten or liven up this moment? And if they're like, I I feel really good about all of it. I just like want this experience for them. Then we can offer suggestions. And then we do that. I then coordinate with teaching artist schedules to line them up to say, I need you here for second period and fourth period and sixth period. And it's like a big puzzle kind of fitting it all together. Once that hard part is over, then the real magic happens. So for the students, it's like a field trip, but in their own space. We come in and that makes it feel I think, really relevant because for them, it's not a separate time, a separate place and having to hearken back to something they've already done. It's, oh, this play I'm already reading in this class I'm prepared for. And then these theater artists who are trained in best teaching practices coming in and telling me about what it's like to be a professional performer and engaging with this literature that I am studying and taking it to this different level. And instead of focusing on the performance part, which those performers would do outside of the classroom, we focus on the process part. So they discuss what is it like as an actor when they are rehearsing? How do I break apart a text and use my voice and my body to explore character? And how can that help you as a student better understand the literature and explore theme and big questions? And that's what the classroom workshops look like. And do you then ask students to give that a try? Yeah. So tell me about that. From the beginning. Yes. So we are sometimes in the classroom. Sometimes we'll go into a little theater or a larger space. But from the beginning, we are asking students to the best of their abilities to get up and out of their seats, to use their voices and their bodies, to move around and explore how getting Shakespeare into themselves, right, out of their head and into like the physical element changes the way they experience it. That's based on a principle called drama-based pedagogy, which when it was first kind of being brought into education 10, 11 years ago was kind of revolutionary. And now I think is like very, 
will sound very familiar. And it's not performance in the classroom. It is using performance techniques in all classrooms to help really enliven and enrich in what a student is learning. And so that's what we do. We start by warming up our bodies and warming up our voices. We speak Shakespeare's words all together as a group. And then we take scenes and we split them into parts. And every student in the class is performing that scene. They might only be performing it for two or three other people, but they're performing it. So it takes away the, oh, man, I have to get up and I have to present something formally in front of a group so that those who are nervous don't have to, like, feel that pressure. But it also allows us to see each other speaking and hear each other and watch kind of the ways in which Shakespeare can come to life by more than just maybe the one or two students, who I definitely was one of those right. students, Hands right? Up Raise the their hand. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as you watch students, and you've worked with so many students who have gone through this process, what do you see in them? How do you see them engaging? It's a really neat experience to come into a classroom where usually students are incredibly excited to be doing something different than what their normal day is, but also hesitant, um, sometimes overtly so, right? Like, I am going to try to disassociate from what we're doing. Others, like, my nerves are going to cause me to be, like, overly performative, right? And eventually, once we just keep going and going and going, right, all those walls start to break down a little bit. When you have a workshop that lasts more than just a half an hour, when you're there for more than just one day, the repetition of speaking words over and over again, of moving your body over and over again, it takes away that spotlight. And then they start to just go, oh, wow, that's really interesting that I can like speak this over and over, that I can perform it. And it's also really neat to see some of those students who you know would not have necessarily been the one to volunteer starting to step up and find that agency. And the ones who are natural performers start to maybe push themselves out of their like usual way of performing in front of others and get to see others perform as well. Like the discoveries that are made when a whole group of students is asked to collaborate is a really cool thing to watch, the discoveries being made. What is your favorite Shakespeare play to teach? Oh, my goodness. I think that my favorite Shakespeare play to teach is probably Julius Caesar. I Romeo and Juliet is like an obvious answer because it's Got so much drama and intensity. And, and the characters are the fighting. same age as your students. Yeah. But Julius Caesar, I think, at a when I was teaching in the classroom, I was teaching in a English and civics class. And I think the the combination of a play that is well known by name, but all not always well known in context like and and plot. And looking at, like, what does it mean to be a leader and really grappling back and forth with the two different styles of leadership and how we execute those and then breaking apart all of those characters, I think, is really juicy and interesting. So that's my answer. 
this is a, an uncertain time for a lot of particularly English teachers in yeah. the state of Iowa because of new laws that, that ban books that contain sexual content and some other content from classrooms mm-hmm. and curricula. Does that make this an uncertain time for you entering these classrooms as well? I mean, I think it's always uncertain. I think when you, I think being a teacher and a theater maker, you learn to kind of live with that lower level of uncertainty always. So I would say that that's always in the background. Um, It's something difficult to grapple with. I think it's unfortunate. But the beautiful thing about Shakespeare is he gives us sort of a universal palette on which we can discuss big modern conversations without the pressure of very specific modern details, right? And so in a really like positive light, I would say that that allows us to maybe take the allows teachers to take the urgency, right? And in some way, the threat of some of our current, like, very real laws, right? Um, Off the table and say, let's look at some of these big ideas that you're, you know, that you want to investigate. And let's see how they've played out through time. Kathleen Johnson, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And I have to say, if there is time, that none of this would be possible for us without Midwest One. So big shout out to them. Kathleen Johnson is the educational coordinator for Riverside Theater in Iowa City and the director of the Willpower program designed to bring Shakespeare to life in local schools. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Caitlin Troutman, and Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. You can get in touch with us anytime. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And of course, you never need to miss a program. You can subscribe to our podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.